Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, June 2nd, and today, Eric Gardner stops by to discuss the trial of the century, or at least until the next trial of the century, Johnny Depp's apparent victory over ex-wife Amber Heard in his defamation lawsuit against her. And later on in the show, Dylan Byers stops by to talk about his recent call with Meta COO Sheryl Sandberg, who announced she will be stepping down and leaning out from the company after 14 years. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy thursday y'all i'm joined right now by eric gardner with some analysis on the biggest story of the century <laughs> uh, a jury in virginia ruled that amber heard defamed her ex-husband johnny depp and jurors decided to award johnny depp $15 million in damages from Amber Heard, and, and also Depp has to pay Amber Heard $2 million. Ultimately, the judge in the case might tweak those damages and they will get paid out a little less. Eric, I think a lot of people are projecting their politics, their morals, their past bad relationships onto this, <laughs> this trial, and, and that's driving a lot of the hot takes around it. Can you just back up for a second and tell us what was the heart of this case. What was this about? What was the nut of this lawsuit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it stems back to 2016 when they get uh, divorced and they go through a very ugly divorce proceeding. Amber Heard filed for divorce from Johnny Depp on Monday, three days after Johnny's mom passed away. Allegations were heaped at each other. The tabloids picked this up. 
their divorce happened just as Me Too was happening. So, you know, a lot of people were, you know, looking at, at this sort of thing and they were wondering whether it was more emblematic of a powerful man and, and all that. And then, you know, a couple of years later go by, you know, there's still allegations that are floating and she writes an op-ed. It's not about Johnny. The only one who thought it was about Johnny is Johnny. It's about me. It's about what happened to me after Johnny. It's about what happened to me after I escaped my marriage. It was about me. She writes an op-ed that basically says, you know, I became a symbol of domestic abuse and what society does to women, we need to change, we need to fix. And for various reasons, Johnny Depp seized on that and, and sued her for defamation. He also sued uh, a tabloid in the UK for calling him a wife beater. A-lister actor Johnny Depp still managed to play to the crowd as he began his libel action against the Sun newspaper's publishers. So there were these parallel cases that were going on at the same time. And the crux of the case was, you know, do you believe her? Do you believe him? Who was lying about what happened during the marriage? And it got to the jury. And over six weeks, as we all know, full details of their lives were aired. And today, you know, we, we get the conclusion. Among those details, were, there was just lots of evidence, like video, text messages, what they were saying privately versus their appearances publicly. There were a lot of details in that evidence that could be defined as abuse, I guess, on, on both sides. Why did the jury decide that none of it actually was? Honestly, if I had to guess like what was crucial, I would say it's not any particular evidence. It was the lack of evidence because she was one of the most photographed women in the world during this marriage. So Depp's side can kind of point to the fact that, you know, she she was allegedly being beaten here and there and say, well, if that was true, you know, why weren't there photographs? You know, why weren't the cops called and, and, and all that? I also think that Depp's strategy was, was kind of to broaden out the case and make it a kind of a referendum on her likability and her credibility. So they pointed to stuff like, she said she'd donate the divorce settlement to charity, and she didn't. So as of today, you have not donated $7 million of your divorce settlement to charity, right? I have not been able to fulfill those uh, obligations yet. She said she heard that, you know, Kate Moss was thrown down the stairs, but that's not what Kate Moss said. Did Mr. Depp push you in any way down the stairs? No. And they pointed to the fact that, you know, it looked like she was leaking stuff to TMZ. You know, this just like kind of painted her as, you know, some sort of, you know, evil monster. And uh, they, they seized on that and they were able to tell a compelling story. I also think it's very relevant that she's an actress by profession. I think that the jury was perhaps more capable of believing that she was performing this lie because of what she did in her career. Is it possible to appeal something like this if you're Amber Heard? Absolutely. And there will definitely be an appeal. I mean, there's just too much money at stake right now for there not to be an appeal. And I think that there are good issues to appeal, which I can get into. But let me say, just because there will be appeal does not necessarily mean that there will be an appellate conclusion. Because I also see a scenario where he just says, you know, I'm satisfied with winning. I don't care too much about the money. And the two of them kind of come into a settlement. 
where he might sell for less money in return for calling it a day. I think that, you know, she's going to be under tremendous financial pressure to, you know, possibly settle. But if it does go on appeal, there's certainly a lot of things to appeal. For starters, the fact that this was in Virginia. Neither actor lives in Virginia. Neither actor has much to do with the state. An appeals court might look at the issue of jurisdiction and, and try to figure out, was this really the right venue to have this case play out? Then there are lots of other things that, that, that came up. I mean, this, this case lasted for years and both sides spent millions of dollars. There are like a ton of issues. Uh, most lawyers that I know were quite surprised at how broad this case was. The judge made very little narrowing of issues. They just let like everything fly. And so I think there could be a good substantial appeal. We talked many weeks ago about why this trial was being held in Virginia. Partly Depp's lawyers chose it, right? Because that's where the Washington Post like printing press is actually located in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But I feel like when we last discussed this case, one reason for that was, and you can explain the legalese, but Virginia had sort of more permissive standards for a lawsuit like this. And Depp wanted a venue where he could present a lot of damning evidence and at least win a public argument against Amber Heard, even if the case was a little shaky. So with all that in mind, the fact that he actually won seems like a really big surprise. I feel like a lot of people thought this was just like a show where he could exact some kind of public revenge on her. Well, uh, you know, a couple of things. First of all, there are some states that have become so uh, concerned with litigious people abusing the First Amendment that they have like enacted barriers towards doing it. So you get to the judge a quicker review of the merits of the claims. Some states even allow, you know, appeals before it actually even gets the trial. Virginia didn't have that. And so Depp brought the case here because he was interested in surviving those early rounds. And just the other thing, there really were two trials that were going on. There was the trial in the courtroom, and then there was the trial outside the courtroom. And it's been clear for weeks that Johnny Depp was winning the trial outside the courtroom. I mean, this has become such a phenomenon, and a lot of people were taking his side. I still have doubts about whether he's going to truly savage the career that he once had, but to the extent that he was able to find sympathy with the public, he certainly won that trial even before today. The last thing I want to ask you is the jury clearly did not believe that Amber Heard was a victim of domestic abuse or domestic violence. But regardless of what they found, does this jury decision have any impact on victims moving forward, whether they're celebrities or not? You know, I think it will, especially men who have been accused of sexual assault or domestic abuse will point to this and say, you know, look, you know, this is what the jury found in this one case that everyone knows. It does happen. And so it will become a symbol. In some ways, I do think that this case might actually be more beneficial to these other men than Johnny Depp himself. You know, we laughed at the outset that this is the biggest story of the century. But, you know, in some ways, like I've heard the theory that this has become the most followed case in American history, just based on the fact that, you know, we're now living in the social media age, even greater than OJ. And trust me, I've gotten texts from family members saying, this is OJ for men. This is, you know, definitely something that's going to reverberate. 
for better and for worse. And, you know, from Amber Heard's side, I'm sure she will have a cult following too. She wrote a column about how she stood up and this is how society kind of punished her. I know how many people will come out and say whatever for him. That's his power. That's why I wrote the op-ed is I was speaking to that phenomenon. How many people will come out in support of him and will fall to his power? He is a very powerful man and people love currying favor with powerful men. I have seen people do this time and time again. That's why I wrote the op-ed. And a lot of women, they're gonna see this and say, you know, that's exactly what happened to her. And so we're not done with this conversation by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I think the the psychological abuse that Depp inflicted on Amber Heard and the psychological abuse that Amber Heard inflicted on Johnny Depp is a very important side story to this. And it's very difficult to litigate that. The domestic abuse, domestic violence, sometimes you can see tangible outcomes from that. And emotional, psychological, mental abuse is much more complicated and certainly not going away. Eric, thank you so much, man. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Dylan Byers on his beat right now. Thank you, Peter. So the big news out of Silicon Valley this week, Sheryl Sandberg finally stepping down from Facebook after 14 years. Uh, Shortly after she announced the news on her Facebook page, I got on the phone with her for a quick conversation regarding her tenure there, what she's planning to do next, and why she left. Look, I think... Everyone who pays attention to the news, um, and certainly the folks in Wall Street, Washington, and of course, Silicon Valley, have sort of been waiting for this day. And in fact, some people have been hoping for this day, because I think in certainly since 2016 and the fallout from Cambridge Analytica and everything after that, Facebook really became the sort of poster child uh, for everything that was supposedly wrong with big tech and with social media. Uh, And that was true in terms of everything from data collection to political influence, everything across the board. And so I think this is sort of this thing that people have been predicting. I mean, I remember since I started covering Sheryl Sandberg and Facebook five or six years ago, that at least once, if not twice a year, there was somebody who was out there writing and suggesting that Sheryl Sandberg was not long for her job. And that never happened. And, and, and the reason that that was is because behind the scenes, she and Mark had an incredibly close relationship. They had the experience of having gone through all of the trials and tribulations uh, uh, that came with the negative press, that came with the controversy. And then I think most importantly, although it can be hard to remember now, but before this iteration of Facebook and before this iteration of Sheryl Sandberg, there was the first iteration, which was Sheryl Sandberg as the lean-in, you know, feminist business icon, the person who was the adult in the room at Facebook and was helping to elevate that brand and, and help it achieve global success, which, which she did and was credited for up until Facebook fell out of favor, up until big tech fell out of favor uh, with the culture and with the mainstream media. And so I think, you know, when a day like this comes, I think there's so many critics out there, so many folks who are saying, wondering to themselves, there has to be more here. There, you know, Mark Zuckerberg finally decided 
that Cheryl was bad, that Cheryl wasn't good at her job, et cetera, et cetera. And the truth is, well, there could always be more afoot. The best sources I talk to inside Menlo Park, sources around the situation, sources who know sort of how this went down, say that there's not, that she was at this job for 14 years, which is an incredibly long time. There were a lot of ups and there were certainly more recently a lot of downs. The market is in turmoil. I think Facebook is something like 45 to 50% off of where it was at the start of the year. And she's getting married this summer and she, she's got kids and it was time for her to move on. But I spoke to her just minutes after the news went public, after she published her Facebook post announcing that she was stepping down. And three things she told me that I think were of note. The first thing is that she, she herself reiterated that there really is no backstory here. Of course, if there was a backstory, she probably wouldn't say it. But she gave me every reason to believe that this was just the time to go. I think that she, uh, in speaking to her, I think that there's an awareness that this is probably not the ideal terms on which to leave, that in a better world, she might have left and been able to move on to another career in public office or public life. That probably won't happen, at least right away. And the third thing she talked about, which, which struck me as really interesting, is she put a great deal of emphasis on her team and the team she had been put in place. And one thing that you would hear from critics a lot in recent years was that her role at Facebook, her influence in Zuckerberg's orbit was uh, diminishing in light of the fact that a lot of people who worked under her and still reported to her were taking on larger and larger roles and greater responsibilities. I think that's certainly one interpretation of what happened. I think the other interpretation of what happened, if you look across the business landscape, you see how much a company can be thrown into chaos during a leadership transition. Let's talk about Disney with the handoff from Bob Iger to Bob Chapek. CNN, the transition from Jeff Zucker to Chris Licht has not gone incredibly well. She has put a lot of people in place who have who were promoted before she left and they are they are now in a place to run Facebook, you know, effectively or at least they're capable enough to do the job that is being asked of them. And I think in a way, her legacy will be defined in large part by how her team performs after her departure. And then I think secondly, the sort of influence, the enduring influence that she's had on Mark Zuckerberg in in terms of helping him to sort of mature. And so Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the, the executive leadership there will continue to have its critics, even with Cheryl out of the picture. Uh, I'm sure they will figure out, the media will figure out a new executive among their ranks to, to sort of lift up and then tear down. But it, it is a complicated and somewhat troubled run at Facebook, but it, but it was, is not without remarkable success. And then, of course, I, I would say a few remarkable failures. Anyway, this is a developing story. We're going to be covering it, obviously, uh, for a long time, this and the fallout and where Facebook goes from here. So if you want to read about this, my interview with Cheryl and more, you can follow us at puck.news. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.